0: Of a series called living in between and we've been going through the series as part of our advent series and advent is basically like a countdown to christmas and it's something that we do as christians like a lot of churches around the world do this obviously the people who lived back then uh, 2,000 years ago they didn't do this because they totally missed out you know so uh this is our way of you know um it's like a an ancient ritual that prepares our hearts you know because they missed jesus the first time we don't want to miss him when he comes a second time. So this is what living in between is all about. And uh, if you've been part of a traditional church, which we're not so much that traditional, but if you've been a part of a traditional church, you'll know that during Advent season, they have like these candlesticks and they light one each week. And then the tallest one in the middle is, the you know. But um, each candlestick represents something. And so we've been going over each of those things, those, those themes, those elements of Advent. And I want to kind of go over what we talked about. Quick summary. Here we go. The first one we talked about is hope. The first candlestick represents hope, but we talked about how the way we define hope in this world today is very different. Well, not very different. It's different from the way that the Bible defines hope. For example, today when we think about hope, we think about circumstances that happen in the midst of darkness. Like for example, if your favorite basketball team is losing and you're about to give up hope, but they make that one three and then they steal the ball and make a dunk and they steal the ball again, you're like, oh wait, we're only three points down. We have hope, right? Or, you know, um, hey, I I heard that the numbers are going down or going up in COVID or whatever, but once you hear the numbers are getting really low, you're like, okay, there's hope. We look to circumstances, things that happen, like little sparks in the darkness, and we call that, uh, those are signs of something good that's about to happen. That's how we today define hope. But in the Bible, hope is something that's a little different. We don't look to current circumstances. Rather, we look to the past. We look back and say, well, what has God done in our midst in the past, and because he did that in the past, we could count on it, he's going to do it again, and that's where our hope comes from. So hope in the Bible talks about looking to the past, looking to who God is, what he has done, to talk about whether, if it's, if, if it's okay for us to have optimism in the midst of darkness. So that's hope. Then the week after that, Lori talked about the word peace. That's the second candlestick. Peace, again, is different, the way, the way that we define peace today is different from the way that the Bible defines peace. The Bible, the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew. In the Hebrew language, the word for peace is shalom. You've probably heard that before. Shalom is different from peace today because today when we think about peace, we think of a lack of chaos. Like, for example, if you hear that the war is over, there's no more war, then you're like, yes, we're in a time of peace, right? Or you're thinking, you know, there's less violence. Oh, hey, less violence means time of peace. But that's not how the Bible defines peace. If Peace, as we understand it today, is basically, hey, there's no more violence, there's no more war, therefore we're in peace. The Bible goes beyond that and says, no, no, peace isn't really a lack of chaos or a lack of violence. Peace is when the world begins to look more and more like the ideal world that God intended to create in the first place. So it's not just a lack of war or chaos, it's also, hey, look, our neighbors are loving on one another. Hey, look, the people who are marginalized are no longer marginalized. As we start moving towards, and more, you know, people are holding hands and seeing kumbaya. I don't know, right? But the closer we get to this ideal image of what God created the world to be, that's what we call shall the world looks. We're also talking about ourselves. The more we become more in tune with who God created us to be, the more in peace that we are in. So that's the second candle. The third candle is joy. Again, the way the world defines joy is different from the way we define joy. We talked about how joy you know, usually we think about happiness, but there's different levels of happiness, right? And, and usually happiness is like a circumstantial, like this happened right now, like something good happened, therefore I'm happy, right? But when it comes to the Bible, when, it t- when we talk about joy, we, we look to, um, well, in the Old Testament, they talked about two things that cause joy. For example, these group of people who are called the Israelites that are traveling through the desert. And they're in the middle of a desert and they're singing songs of joy. And you might be thinking like, oh, these people really like being in dry areas with no water. And that's not the case at all. They found joy knowing that even through the cruddiest of times and places that God would not leave them. They're never alone. And so they're like, even though we're in this really bad place, we have joy because we know that God has not abandoned us. And another form of joy that comes in the Old Testament is when things are really not looking good for us, people look at... Well, they look at the, these people called the prophets, and these prophets would say, guys, it's not going to be this bad forever. One day, God's going to send this character named the Messiah, and this Messiah, well, he's going to take the wrong things and make it right. And so the birth of Jesus was the, was the greatest form of joy because that's where these two things came together. They found out that God is with them, came in the form of a baby, and that he was the Messiah, and now he's here in our midst. So that's joy in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Today we're talking about the fourth candlestick, which is the last one, which is this, love. Love. And as you might have guessed, love today is different from the way that the Bible describes love. So I want to take a few minutes to talk about this, and, you know, when you think about Christmas service, and this is something I really struggle with, guys, Okay, so I'm thinking like, okay, as a pastor, as a teaching pastor, when it comes to Christmas service, you want to make it Christmassy, right? But you know, I can't go on a day without talking about, like, context and Hebrew scripture and stuff like that. So um, we might be different from other churches, but today we're going to learn some Hebrew words. Because, you know, when you think Christmas service, you think, I want to learn Hebrew. So, (laughs) So today when we think about love, we think about, like, emotions, right? Sometimes we talk about love as something we can't control. Like, you say things like, I fell in love. Or it's this Feeling. And there is a word in the Hebrew for that. And the word for love in the Hebrew is the word ahava. Oh, let's see it together. Ahava. Yeah, very good. Ahava, yeah. And this is how it's written. You read from the right to the left in Hebrew. But English, you read this way. Okay, but and ahava is this passion. It's this compassion. It's an, it's an affection. It's an emotion. So the word ahava is a very broad word, just like love is. Like today, in our world, when we use the word love, we talk about how we love pizza and ice cream, and we love Star Wars. We love Spider-Man. That's now in theaters. Check it out, um, right? But we also use the word love to talk about, like, I love my child. I love my parents. I love Jesus, right? And so it has this wide range of things. Like, how can we use the same word to love, you know, candy, and use the same word to say that we love the creator of the universe, right? It's, it's weird, but it's really broad. The word ahava is also very broad, it's an affection that you could have for your child, for your best friend. You're like, dude, I love you, man. That would be Ahava, right? Um, uh, I love my, I love this business. I love, you know, I don't know, whatever business you like. Um, I, I love DoorDash. I don't know. What to, um, um, or it could be your significant other. Like, I love my boyfriend, girlfriend, my companion. I love uh, my wife. I love my husband. I love, you know, whoever. It could be that. It could also be used to say that God Ahava's humanity. It's an emotional kind of love. But because it's so broad, because there's so many versions, like, increments of love in that word ahava, the Hebrew writers, they had to come up with another word to accompany the word ahava to talk about what specific type of love God has for us. And the word, and this is your second Hebrew word, and this is all you have to know, okay? The second word is this. It's the word chesed. Can you say, okay, you have to, it's like clearing your throat. It's say chesed. Okay, half of you tried. half of you guys just gave up. Um, a lot of times you'll see a spell with a C-H, but that's because the sound is chesed, but people say, oh, chesed. So, no, but it's pronounced with a ch sound. And sometimes they spell with a K, K-H-E-S-E-D, because, you know, they're like, how do we get Americans to say ch? So, but we'll just say H, chesed. That's how you pronounce it. And chesed has many different translations. The word chesed doesn't have a direct correlated word in the English language, so when translators were looking at Hebrew scriptures, they're like, how do we translate this in English? Well, depending on where you find it in the Bible and what version of the Bible you use, they translate it into different types of words. For example, the word chesed could be unfailing love. And I'm gonna go over some of these examples to get you an idea what chesed looks like, okay? In other translations, you'll see them use the word mercy or sometimes forgiveness. Other times, the word chesed could be used like the word loving kindness. Now, this is not a typo. It's not like I ran out of space horizontally, so I forgot to put a space. These people, they couldn't think of a word that tr- translated the word chesed so well that they're like, it's like love, but it's also kindness. Uh, you know what? Let's just make up a word. We'll glue them together. It'll be one word. Maybe we'll win the award for the longest word in the in English dictionary back then. But if you look in your King James Bible, the word loving kindness is often used. They had to make up a word. Because this word is so, like, how do we translate it? Another word that you'll find in the Bible translated by chesed is the word faithfulness. And so, and I hope you're getting an idea of what chesed is. And if you don't, I'm going to give you some stories in the Bible that uses the word chesed, and maybe then you'll understand more what this love is. So I'll give you an example. The first example, well, there's this character named Ruth in the Old Testament. And if you don't know the story of Ruth, here's a quick summary. This is how it goes. There's a lady by the name of Naomi, and she has a husband and two sons. Okay, and her two sons gets married to a lady. Each, each one gets one, right? So one is Ruth, and the other one, oh, sorry, i got to move over, sorry. Green line, stay within the green line. Okay. <laughs> so there's, so uh, Naomi has two, two sons, and those two sons get married. One is Orpah, and the other one, I believe, is Ruth. Now, all three men in this story, they all die. And so Naomi is now a widow, and uh, so are the two daughter-in-laws. And at this point, Naomi says, hey, you know, you guys don't need to stay. You guys could go back to your homeland because, you know, you're still young. And in this culture, women, if you're by yourself, you really can't make it. So you need to go back to your hometown and maybe hook up with somebody else. I don't know, like whatever. Make sure you just go and take care of yourself. Orpa's like, all right, I'm going to go. Everything's going to be, you know. See you guys later. Thanks for the few days that we were a family, but I'm going to go. But Ruth says, no, 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 I'm staying here with you. Yes, you're right. I could go home to my hometown and meet somebody there and get married and be fine, but I'm not going to do that. Naomi, I'm going to stick with you. Your people will be my people. Where you die is where I'm going to die. And she didn't just mean that in like one day when we die. She knew that the probability of them surviving, it was very low. And she says, I am going to stick with you no matter what. I know I don't have to but I'm going to. And then a few chapters later in this story, this guy, his name is Boaz, like, a, yo, I'm Boaz, like it's such a, yeah, uh, Boaz. And he, he observes this, and this is what he says about what he thinks God is thinking about Ruth. He says this, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This chesed is greater than, uh, than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. It's like you didn't have to run. You could have gone away and gotten remarried, but you didn't. You decided to show loyalty. You decided to, to just stick with it, even though you knew this path was hard. You decided to do this, and he said, that's chesed. I've seen chesed in you. Another example in the book of Genesis, there's this character by the name of Jacob. Now, Jacob has a brother named Esau. They don't get along because Esau is like the star athlete and he's like the guy that stays home and, like, makes cookies, right? And God give, gave his dad a blessing. And this blessing was supposed to go to one of his two sons. And the whole time Jacob is thinking, how do I take that blessing for myself? Because I know Esau, my, my brother Je- Esau is going to get it. How do I make sure that I get it? So what he does is he concocts this, this weird scheme where he dresses up as his brother. His brother is really hairy, so he puts on, like, fur, and he goes to his dad who's blind and is like, touch me, dad like, you don't sound like my son, but you feel like my son. It's like, now just give me the blessings. Like, okay, I'm gonna give it to you. Like, he totally, it's a crazy story. He deceives his dad and his brother, and when he gets the blessing, he takes off and lives with his uncle, and his uncle doesn't treat him right. So he deceives his uncle, and he runs away with one of his daughters, or actually both of his daughters, right? It's like this really weird story, and he's deceived people over and over and over again until he is confronted by God, and he looks back at his story, and he realizes, Gee, you know, I've been doing so many bad things, but for some reason, God has always stuck with me. It's not like He's like, hey, good job on that deception, you know? Like, He's not like that. He's like, no, no, no. I know God's not pleased with what I've been doing, and then He looks to God and He prays this and He says this. He says, "I am unworthy of all the hesed you have shown your servant." There's no reason why God should stick with me. I've done only bad things in my life, yet You continue to stick with me, and He said that. Part of you, God, is chesed. Are you starting to get an idea what chesed is like? It's like this idea of no matter what you do, I'm going to stick with you. No matter, like, if God loves me, it's not because I earned it. That's what chesed is. Another example, the Israelites are slaves and God pulled them out of Egypt, Moses being their leader, pulled them out of Egypt, and every step of the way, God is like, I'm going to train you guys to become the people who's going to go and bless the world. You're going to go and fix everything in the world that's broken, right? But then, as they're going on this journey, they keep messing up over and over and over again. Even at one point, they start rebelling against God. And God is thinking, dude, you guys are supposed to be the people that's supposed to f- fix the world. You're supposed to partner with me and do something amazing in this world, but you keep pushing back on me. And you keep giving us, like, and God is like, but I'm going to keep giving you a chance. This is your last chance. Okay, you messed up again. It's okay. This is your last chance. No, okay, well, I'm going to give you chance after chance after chance after chance. And at one point, Moses is like, God's not going to have this, like, I know he's patient, but I'm sure there's an end to his patience. So at this point in the story, Moses is asking God, would you please give us another chance? Would you please give give us another chance? And in his prayer, this is what Moses says. In accordance with your chesed, because God, I know that you're a God that gives us chance after chance. Forgive the sins of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The way that Moses describes God is a God who keeps on forgiving over and over and over and over again. It seems like his patience is infinite. But he keeps saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. He says, this kind of love, Moses says, is chesed. I'm going to give you one more example, and maybe this will hit home. Like, this will make more sense for you guys. Somewhere in the middle of the Old Testament, there is a character by the name of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet of God, and he's like, God, I just want to know who you are. What is it like to be you, God? And at that point, God's like, you really want to know what it's like to be me? Okay, well, here you go. Go marry a girl. So he marries a girl, right? And as soon as they get married, she's like, okay, I'm going to go off and sell myself to— the men around me. It's an easy way to make a buck, right? So he goes, she goes out and starts selling herself. And is like, wait a minute. You're my wife. What are you doing? Like, and he keeps calling out to her. Please come back home. Please come back home. Please come back home. Please. I love you. Please come back. And she's like, yeah, I know you love me, but I'm going to keep going. And at one point, Hosea realizes the only way that I can have my wife back if, if, if I become one of her clients, if I pay her, if I'm, if I'm willing to pay to have what's already mine, then maybe I could spend time with her. And when it came to that, this is what Hosea said Hosea said, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in chesed and compassion. I'm here to stick with you no matter what. I don't care how you treat me, I'm still here for you. This is what chesed is it's long suffering. And so this is the word that the Bible uses when it talks about who God is. God is chesed. As a matter of fact, there's like a lot of famous psalms out there. There's a psalm about how your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. You know, The love right, word, love right there is the word chesed. Like your patience with, with us is forever, expands forever, right? The way that you have compassion for us, that, it's like chesed. You never give up on us and there's nothing that we did to earn it. So if we were to talk about the characteristics of hesed, here, this is what we could say about hesed, okay? So for hesed, the first thing we know is this, that it is not conditional. There's nothing that you do that you, that you could earn. Like, it's not like God was looking at the Israelites saying, you know, you messed up so many times, but that last song you sang to me, you sang it with such, so much fervor. You know what, I'm gonna give you another chance. No, it's not because anything that we've done, right? It's, there's no condition to it. It's not like you could do something nice and God would love you more. It's not like we did something bad and God would love you less. He says, my love for you has no conditions at all. That's the word chesed. Maybe some people would translate the word chesed as loyalty. I'm in it for a long haul. The second characteristic of chesed is that it's an extension of one's character. If I were to show you chesed, it's not because it's like, okay, here's a checklist. Today I'm going to forgive my friend. That's not chesed. Chesed is well, of course that person has chesed. That's just who he is, who she is. Like, I'll, I'll, like if I were to say, like, if, I, if Ruth was my best friend and I just heard a rumor about what she's going through, right, and if the rumor goes like this, hey, did you hear about, you know, Ruth? You know, you know, she just got married, you know, yeah. Did you know her husband passed away? It's Like, really? And if the story just ended right there, me being her friend, I would just say, tell me no more because I already know who she is. She's probably going to stay there, isn't she? Because it's just an extension of who she is. Chesed, when you look at the scriptures, you'll discover it's always an extension of one's character. The third thing we know about chesed now is that it's tangible. It's not like, hey, you know, um, yeah, I'll stick with that person. I, you know, I'll, I'll forgive that person. It's not just that. You'll see that person act in a way that's consistent with chesed. So, for example, a lot of time the word chesed is translated as generosity because we see people being generous towards the people that they love. We see people giving their time, giving their resources to the people that they have chesed towards. So, if I were to like, summarize what chesed is, and you see, you learn Hebrew today, um, is this, chesed is never based on the worthiness of the one receiving it. It has nothing to do with who you are. It is always founded on the loyalty and character of the one extending it. That's the word chesed. That's the word love. So do you see how different it is from the kind of love that you hear maybe like in your favorite song, you know, or like this kind of love is so deep. It lasts forever. And that's the kind of chesed, kind of love that God has for humanity. So let's connect this to the Christmas story because today is Christmas service. So in the Christmas story, this takes place about 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, there was a t- it was a time of darkness. There wasn't much going on because you know up up until about 400 years before Christmas, people were like, oh here's prophet so and so, here's prophet so and so. God has a word for us, and all of a sudden it just stopped, and people are wondering, does God still love us? You know we used to have hope, but we haven't heard from God for 400 years. Maybe our hope was misplaced. Peace, yeah, yeah. I do believe that God's going to create a more ideal world, but can we really count on that promise? Joy. You know, I know that the prophets have told us that the Messiah is going to come and that God is going to always be with us, but I'm not feeling it. And so, on the day of Christmas, God sent his only son in a manger, the most vulnerable type of way of coming into this world. He was placed in the care of two people who had no place, no social status, these people who were poor, and he he wasn't laid in a nice comfy bed. He was placed in a feeding trough. And God says, do you want proof that I love you, that I have hesed, my hesed has not run out on you? Do you want proof of that? Well, here you go. I'm coming into this world in the most vulnerable way possible. And guess what? There's nothing in it for me. God's not like, if I do this, I win. (laughs) You know, that's not the case at all. He's like, I'm coming into this world in a baby in the most formal way possible, and there's nothing in it for me. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this to prove to you that I love you and that there's nothing you could do to earn it and there's nothing you could do to lose it. And we know this to be true. Because there's hints in the Christmas story that tell us that this is exactly the heart of God. As a matter of fact, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, baby Jesus, um, when Mary became pregnant, she wrote a song and she sang it to her sister. And in this song... This is what she says. This is called a Magnificat for those of you who are into knowing what these songs are called. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 48. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Right? And then she continues. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. All generations, not just her life, you know. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His chesed extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. She's saying, this, my pregnancy right now with the baby Jesus, this is proof that God is not done with us. This is proof that he hasn't run short on his, on his uh, patience. Like He's like, God is still with us. He, his promises are good. It will endure forever. And we know that he'll never give up on us because check this out. God has given us a gift, baby Jesus. And this gift is not just for me or for the people around me. It's for generations to come, forever and ever and ever, for all generations. If you guys remember the story of Luke, you'll know that this is chapter 1. In chapter 2, Jesus is born. And when Jesus is born, there's a bunch of shepherds on the hills that's watching their flock at night. And all of a sudden, this bright light shines on the sky and it's these angels. And these angels start singing to them. And it it says, hey, shepherds, you need to go to Bethlehem in this little place. You'll find a baby in a manger, right? You should go check it out. Now, here's one thing that some of you may know, may not know. Shepherds were not considered to be the highest of society. As a matter of fact, they were on the lowest end of the social ladder. These people were smelly, dirty. They were considered to be unclean, right? And so these people were usually pushed off to the side, and it's in this context that we read chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So you just imagine. No streetlights. It's completely dark. All of a sudden, it's bright. Your, your pupils dilate. You know, you're like, oh, I can't see. And then this is what happens. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. When Mary talked about Jesus being born, she was talking about all generations. Here, the shepherds, they learned that it's for all people. Now, why is this important? Because people like the shepherds were usually the ones that got left out. If you have FOMO and if you're a shepherd, you would totally not like your life because there's some amazing thing going on over there, and you're not allowed to be a part of that because you're unclean. That That was the reputation back then. But when baby Jesus came, the angel said, you know who needs to hear this? The people who are on the outskirts, the people who are usually left out. So when he says, this, this good news, this baby Jesus, is for all people, there's kind of like a nudge and a wink going on here saying, hey, this good news is for all people, nudge, nudge, people like you, shepherds. Yeah, nothing that you've done has earned you the privilege to see the baby Jesus in this manger. But because this message is for all people, not just the rich, but for people like you. And so this story, chapter 2, even though it doesn't have the word chesed in it, it has hesed written all over it. In other words, the birth of Jesus was proof that God loves all people in all generations. It's not for a specific small group of people. It's not just for a group of people in a certain time or a certain ethnicity or a certain, place, a certain group of people in some social ladder somewhere, you know. It's for all people. Because that's what chesed requires. And you're wondering, like, well, why? Why is this for all people in all generations? Well, it's because. It's because that's who God is. He can't help it. It's like, guys, I want to give you good news. I want to give you hope. I want to give you joy. I want to give you peace. Why? Well, I can't help it. It's just me. It's the nature of who I am. I am God. I am love. I can't do anything but this. Well, why don't you give up on us? Because it's not part of my imagination. I don't even know how to give up on you. So let me summarize what we've been talking about for the last four weeks, and we'll close because this is seeing the bigger picture is very important. In this timeline, this is the first coming of Jesus. That's the birth. Of, that's the Christmas story. Jesus came into this world, and when he came into this world, he brought with him these four things we just talked about: hope, peace, joy, and love. And any time in this timeline, as you're walking through life, if you ever feel like, does God love me? Does God have you know? What, what about this peace thing? What about this joy thing? I forgot about all these things. You could always look back to Jesus' birth and say, no, no, no. I know that God loves me because of Christmas. I know that I can have hope. I know I can have joy. I know I have peace because Christmas. It was the anchor that God placed in, in history that we could always look to to remind ourselves that we could live our lives with hope, joy, peace, and love. Whenever you're going through a tough time, oh yeah, this Christmas. Whenever you've lost hope, maybe you've been through some tough times recently. Loss of a friend, loss of a family member. Maybe with Omicron creeping its back way, it, it, creeping it in again to, into what we thought would become a normal life. You're like, oh, I don't know if I have hope anymore for the future. When that happens, he says, always look back to the first coming because that is an event that God created 2,000 years ago that we could look back at. But here's the thing. As we travel through, our t- through time, we're moving towards something called the second coming. The second coming is when Jesus comes back and he finishes what he started. But we are people who live in between. And this is supposed to be the fuel that's supposed to keep us going until the second coming. And we are people who are living somewhere around here. I don't know exactly where in the timeline we are. But maybe lately you've been looking at your life, looking at the circumstances around you, and you're like, you forgot about the joy and the peace. You forgot about having hope. Or even maybe you forgot that God loves you. And so today, what we want to do is this. We want to remember the hope, peace, joy, and love Jesus brought to us on that first Christmas. This is why God gave us Christmas. It's so that we could have those four things whenever we feel like life is not going the way we want it to go. We could always fix our eyes back to the birth of Jesus so we could have hope again. We could look back to the hope, looking back in history saying, well, God did these things so I know that I could go on today. Or peace. I know this is all leading to something better than what we have right now, an ideal of God's world, an ideal version of me. Joy. God has promised us to be, that He's going to be with us no matter what, and that He's going to fix the things in this world that's wrong, make it right. And love. We're reminded of His love, that no matter what happens, He will not leave us. He will always, have, always forgive us, He will always have mercy for us, He will always have loving kindness for us. And so that's what Christmas is it's the day that God reminded us that he has chesed for us. Even though we don't feel it sometimes, even though we feel like everything is going down, everything's getting darker and gloomier, he has chesed for us. And we look to Christmas and the baby Jesus in the manger to remind us that it's still there. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for your chesed. You have given us love that we do not deserve,